Welcome to Travel Stories with Trevor Mountcastle and Tom Kim. This episode, we talk returning to Asia. How are you, Tom? I'm pretty good, Trevor. So, Tom, this week, this is actually kind of for me, you know, a little bit of a trip report from my perspective, because I was the one that that made it back to Asia after, gosh, had to have been like three, three and a half years. What do you mean? We went to Manila last year. (laughs) Yes, there we go. The new episode title is A Return to Singapore in Bali. (laughs) Okay, I guess if you want to be more specific and say Southeast Asia, okay, fine. Yeah, yeah. No, well, this is the first time with the family, and I thought it was kind of an interesting thing. And, you know, our trip to Manila was kind of rushed. This almost felt a little bit rushed, even though it was a 10-day trip, just going over President's Day weekend, trying to get, you know, best we could, just like we've shared in other things. Award flights are still really, really hard, and they're even harder for Southeast Asia, and I think anywhere in Asia other than going to Japan. And that might not even be a true statement anymore now that Japan is open. I was about to say, I don't I don't even know if that's still a true statement. Yeah, I think it's still even hard to get a ticket to Japan. And, and of course, we just had that recent devaluation on Alaska. So that made it a little bit more expensive to get there too. Yeah, maybe that'll help on the award flights. But gosh, Alaska's got a really bad narrative there. I mean, what was it like, you know, five, six years ago, they do this no notice devaluation. I remember with Emirates, I was trying to book a flight on on Alaska's website at the same exact time that they were like changing the award charts. I was watching these awards go up in price literally in real time. I don't know that anybody was doing that with Japan Airlines, but another time after they said after that Emirates one, hey, we'll give notice. No, they didn't say true to their word. Yeah, they don't have too much credibility there now. I remember that too, because I was just about to collect 100,000 Alaska miles. I was like, yes, I have just enough to book some Emirates and, and of course, couldn't anymore. Yeah, yeah. Well, RIP for, for that wonderful Emirates. For uh, 100,000, you could fly anywhere from the US except for Oceania. And then if you just wanted to go to the Middle East, I think it was only like, what, 80,000? Such a deal for first class. Yep. But, you know, it sounds like you had some success regardless of the turmoil or the difficulty. It sounds like you were able to get your family of three all the way to Southeast Asia. I'd I'd love to hear you walk through that itinerary with us. Yeah. So I had the way home for probably a good, you know, couple few weeks, maybe even a little longer than that. And we kept on tweaking it, trying to figure out, you know, where we were ultimately going to go. We didn't end up narrowing in how we were going to get out there until about two weeks before when we saw the Washington Dulles to London on the Saturday before, I think it was the Saturday before President's Day weekend, or President's Day, became available. Now, obviously, leaving on a Saturday night, you know, for a week-long trip, you already lost a day. And connecting in Europe, you lose another day. So, you know, 10 days ends up becoming only about, I think, six nights actually on the ground. But we got that United flight to Heathrow. I had a three, four-hour layover in Heathrow. Perfect amount of time to get breakfast, shower. And then we boarded really the creme de la creme of the trip. We get that London to Singapore on uh, Singapore's A380. Not only that, but we got one of three pairs of seats that essentially gives you pretty close to a double bed. So, you know, here we have a bulkhead seat. The seat was so big, our daughter had no problem just chilling, chilling in the seat. My wife had plenty of room. I almost imagine that Cutter Q Suites is, is this good. 
This was a newer business class seat, right? Is this one that Singapore started installing on the 380s maybe, what, a year or two ago? How long ago was it, do you think? I thought it might have been three years because I remember seeing the suites before that pandemic. Right. I thought it was just starting to roll out. So maybe it's three years. Incidentally, they let us go up forward and get to check out the suites as well, which are pretty, pretty nice. Really spacious. Much better executed, in my opinion, than the Etihad Apartments. Interesting. Yeah, I mean, it definitely looks that way from the photos. I unfortunately haven't had a chance to try it yet. Hopefully, we'll get the opportunity one of these days. We're right in that same boat very soon. It'll be trying to find three seats or just doing a solo trip, and and neither of those are easy options. I think three first-class suites uh, on the same flight, that is a a pretty high uh, goal there. You know, maybe there'll be some sort of interesting award release, and, and, you know, they've been known to happen. We've been the beneficiaries of those in the past. Oh, absolutely. It's funny. The last time we did this route, I think it was July of 2014, that Singapore just like released to to Star Alliance everything, it felt like. And we ended up flying for New Year's Eve in 2012, I think. New Year's Eve at 2012 in first class. So what was memorable other than the uh, the double bed option on business class? Was there anything else that was pretty memorable about this flight? You know, I felt like the service... I mean, Singapore to me reminds me of, or makes me think of what Pan Am was like, right? Like just the quality of of the service, the refinedness of it. Well, I've never actually flown Pan Am, so. (laughs) I haven't flown Pan Am either, but like the way the (laughs) movies make it look and everything, I just feel like Singapore is, is kind of like that modern day equivalent. So they're holding the torch for the flying service that people had in the bygone era. That's what I would say. Yeah. So I thought the seat was fantastic. Seat was absolutely so much better than I expected. It is the seat that Singapore has owed its flyers forever because this one laid back. It didn't flip forward. That is a big change. When I think Singapore business, I think flip forward. Exactly. And the footwell, because we were in the bulkhead, we had so much footroom in that footwell. I mean, this suite, I was going to say it, call it a room almost because the seat was so big. It was probably the most comfortable business class seat I've slept in. Did you do Book the Cook? We did. We did. And trying to think, I think my wife did lobster thermidor and I did a nice, whatever the nicest steak was. I thought it was really, really nicely done. You know, sometimes that can go a little bit poorly on a plane. Even if you get a really good cut of meat, they just overcook it or something to that effect. This was really well done, not overly done. The doneness was to your liking. Yes. Yeah. I think the most memorable part for us was was, was the fact that that seat was just so much, so much better than what we'd always remembered. When we think of Singapore, you know, the cushioning had the had the right level of softness or, for, you know, versus firmness of every other seat that they have. The crew was just very attentive. They gave our daughter not one but two little stuffed uh, Singapore bears. Oh, nice. It was truly a, a really nice experience. Yeah, I don't normally like to be in those middle seats because I feel like you don't get to see anything. Just the sight lines for the windows worked out really well. The only complaint I'd say is, is that that IFE... It was tired for me, uh, you know, watching the in-flight entertainment. There wasn't a ton of options, even for the first flight. And so by the time I got off our last flight, I was really over much of their offering. Well, I mean, you did spend quite a bit of time in the air. My, I'd say my one one big complaint with Singapore business in particular is no amenity kits. Is that still the case? So they give you like a little like sleeve almost that has, uh, I think, a moisturizer and like the eye shades and and there was like one or two other things they might have given you socks but yeah there's no you don't get that high end amenity kit like you're uh, you, you know like you and I are used to 
on a lot of other other airlines. I mean, I'm sure it's a sustainability type thing, and they want to just and you can you can still get all the things right. They have them in the bathroom, and you can ask the flight attendants for for stuff. But it's just not the same, I think. Yeah, but they've been doing that for as long as I've flown Singapore. I mean, that's never been really a thing in business. I agree. Yeah, it's that's always been the pet peeve, at least for me, for business and on Singapore. Yeah, yeah. No, I just say that because I don't think it's a sustainability thing. I think that's just what they do. Well, I mean, I think it's a sustainability thing that maybe they started a long time ago, but well, regardless. I'm excited to hear about the next leg of the flight, though. That That was a special one, wasn't it? Yeah. So this is one of those things that, you know, the background on this flight, originally we had a flight to Bangkok and we we're going to fly on Singapore. And then we said, you know what, Bangkok's looking a little bit more complicated than we want to nav- navigate with a 16-month-year-old, a 15-month-old really. And so we said, well, we know Bali. Bali's got super cheap hotels and everything. And I had just seen the day before Singapore Airlines, Singapore to Bali. So I'm like, okay, let me see what I can find. Nope. A day goes by. And that flight was completely gone. But then I see this little jewel of a flight that for an airline, I'd never flown. Now, I know that for even you, that's probably pretty surprising. And it's a pretty major airline. You know, it's one that you've kind of left out of your repertoire for a good amount of time, you know, where you've been in this hobby. And it's it's actually surprising it has taken you this long to fly this airline because we've talked about it several times. And you know something I have to say, the, the reason I wasn't flying them was because of their business class seat. And I'm here to tell you. I was remembering that seat much more harshly than it ultimately was. So was it the the 222 on this flight? I don't I actually I'm not sure which equipment you flew. Yeah, it was a 777. 777, okay. It was either 777-200 or 300ER, I can't remember, but it was the 222 configuration. I was hoping that they'd have that newer configuration where they have that similar seat with a reverse herringbone. I feel like we're burying the lead a, a little bit deeply. Oh there. yeah, I guess we 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 need to actually tell them what this flight is. <laughs> and let alone what the airline is. <laughs> <laughs> so one of the fun things about Asia is, is that you've got all these fifth freedom flights, right? And one of the fifth freedom flights that you can fly from Singapore to Bali happens to be on KLM. And it's just kind of like a tag up flight because they fly in from Amsterdam. They get a little bit of a break. I think they switch out air crews and then they go to Bali. Then they come back from Bali and then they fly back to Amsterdam. And this flight was was good. It ended up costing 55,000 Virgin Atlantic miles for all three of us. Okay, got it. So Virgin and BA will allow you to pay miles equivalent of, or I guess the rough equivalent of how much the 10% cost is for, for an infant. Yeah, so 55,000 points for the three of us, business class. It was not what I really wanted to spend having you know spent like 90,000 or 87,500 to get, you know, to get there. But the reality was, was it was the award we needed, and it was a new flight, a new airline, new experience, and again, that fifth freedom flight. And we got those, you know, it's probably the shortest flight that you get those little, what are those gin houses called? I don't actually know off the top of my head, but they're filled with kind of Dutch gin. I think it's like, I'm trying to remember what it's called. It's from a company called Bowles, B-O-L-S, I think is a distillery. And it's KLM, Royal Dutch Airlines. Is the flight that you took, right? This is the airline that has you've somehow managed to avoid <laughs> for, for many, many years. Probably not intentionally, right? Yeah, yeah, exactly. Actually, a little bit intentionally. You know, I thought that seat was really, really bad with the 222. Yeah. It's, it's not the best seat. Yeah, it's not aisle access. It has a small cubby hole for your feet. And it's not the type of seat that I personally would go out of my way to fly other than this particular flight. 
I think this airline, though, in particular, I think a lot of the soft service, like a lot of those things are the things that really, you know, forgive a lot of sins, basically. So I think getting the little Dutch Delft houses, the little, you know, white and blue houses that, that is a tradition for this airline, they give out in business class to every passenger, you know, on their long haul flights. And not so long haul. This was only a two hour flight and we got those. Well, typically on the long haul flights. <laughs> You know, but that's something to look forward to when you fly KLM. And, you know, I would say KLM also, I think generally, I think their catering is a little bit above standard. At least in my experience, flying KLM in business has, has been that way. I've usually enjoyed the meals that they've served. You know, I, th- I think the Dutch service on board has been, you know, maybe a little bit more curt, but, you know, it's still pretty good. I didn't have a problem with any of the uh, flight attendants or the service I received in my past experience. You know, I really did feel like it was very good. I was much more impressed. I think I went in expecting, you know, Air France caliber service, and it definitely was superior to Air France. You know, these flight attendants knew they were taking people to, you know, a holiday. You know, they had a little bit of liveliness to them and that little, you know, kind of enjoyment, almost kind of like what you get on uh, on some of those flights to Hawaii. I mean, there wasn't a halfway to Bali competition, though, but you know, <laughs> it was a late flight. But, you know, that's a really cool Fifth Freedom flight. I'm glad you finally got to experience KLM and their in-flight service. And you finally have some of these uh, Delft houses full of gin that are now part of your airline memorabilia collection. I know I've got a couple as well. And uh, definitely, I think one of the highlights of flying KLM in business is, you know, the nice souvenir. I mean, it's got to be one of the most iconic souvenirs from a business class flight that you can get in, I would say, almost in the world. Absolutely. Yeah. And it was kind of funny because my wife was sleeping for most of that flight. You know, I ate and then they came around with chocolates. I got her chocolate. I got a chocolate for myself. And she wakes up and she's like, did I miss the houses? And I'm like, (laughs) oh, they came out, they came around with chocolates. I, I'm concerned. They, maybe they don't give the the houses on a, on a flight this length. And so we sighed and, and sort of said, you know, well, I guess we'll hope, right. You, You know, but I was starting to lose hope. We were already on the descent. And they finally come around with the houses and my wife knocks me. She's like, see, they do give them. And and we were both a little bit excited about that. Well, that was a special flight, but I guess you had a pretty interesting flight on the way back too. I mean, I think there was another kind of unique leg to this this trip from what it sounded like. Yeah. So actually kind of two, sort of two. So we ended up flying Singapore back from Bali to Singapore. And that was on a 787-10, which was a first for me. Oh, interesting. That seat was actually also the new style seat, I think, because it felt a whole lot more comfortable than the seat on our our, our last flight. So they actually flew the intercontinental equipped uh, Singapore plane because you know I've flown that route too, and I've had intra Asia business as well. You know, and I think it was probably on something similar to a seven eight seven. I'm trying to remember what equipment I was flying when I've done Singapore out of well. They of used Bali. to they used to do a lot of A three thirties, and yes, they'd be in the regional business. But sometime during the pandemic, they started changing their product around and kind of giving that lay flat even on what would be, you know, almost borderline domestic, you know, flights. I say borderline because there's no such thing as a domestic flight out of Singapore. It's it's one of of the more unique airports and countries. They have no domestic flights. Makes perfect sense. It does. But like, can you think of another country that has no domestic flights? Well, what about Hong Kong? Well, but Hong Kong, that's almost China at this point. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> you got to think about all the other city states in the in the world, I guess, which there aren't, I guess, a ton, you know? Yeah, yeah. I could probably think a lot of Caribbean nations probably don't have any domestic flights. 
Yeah, but then when you think about it, you know, you've got the Dutch Islands, you've got the U.S. Virgin Islands. How many Caribbean islands are, are their own unique country? I mean, even Jamaica, I think, ascribes to the king. Well, they're part of the Commonwealth, but I think they're their own countries now. So even though even though they are part of the Commonwealth and they do recognize their sovereign as, you know, now King Charles, I don't, I don't think they're actually – their citizens are not British citizens. They're citizens of the Commonwealth. Okay. Well, we might have to come back on that trivia for another time when we can we can actually research it. But I would offer Singapore is probably the largest country to have no domestic flights. Probably true. So anyway, you had uh, alluded to that other really memorable flight, and that was the longest operated flight, I suppose, by distance in the commercial air world, flying from Singapore to John F. Kennedy Airport. Ironic that I've darkened JFK's door more in the last two years than I did in the preceding like three or four even probably two or three years before the pandemic. But this was operated on an A350-900ULR. And the flight, I think it was booked at 18 hours, 45 minutes or, or so, but ended up being only 17 hours and 30 minutes. Maybe, oh, only maybe booked 17 at a little hours. Bit shorter. <laughs> yeah, only. <laughs> only. only. <laughs> That's an incredible amount of time on one flight. With a 15-month-old. Yeah, Ooh. yeah, that was wow. definitely an interesting experience. I was thankful because uh, we got to the airport just a little bit early, not not too, too early, but uh, we got there early enough to go by the Silver Cruise Lounge, and they had my favorite champagne. They're only the second lounge I've been in that has my favorite champagne, which is Tatinja. So that started the trip out really well. And then we got on the flight. Other than that seat just being so uncomfortable, it's just too firm you know, when they do the fold forward and it's not easy to like fold them back. So I felt like our seats were just in the fold forward the entire 17, not the whole 17 hours, but I'd say probably about like six, you know, 14 or 15 hours of that 17 and a half hour flight. Our seats were in the most uncomfortable, but flat position, whether we wanted to be laying down or, or, or if we were sitting Indian style. Hmm. I'm surprised that they didn't give their longest flight in the world, you know, the newer seats, you know, <laughs> I am very surprised as well. Seems like that should have been the first ones they, they replaced. But you know what? I mean, I guess they were planning on doing – I guess they did a full retrofit of the A380. And, you know, I guess the 350-900s or ULRs probably were – or wait, were they 1,000s or 900s? They were 900s, weren't they? They're 900s, yeah. I think they ordered them before the refits. And, and there was probably something about the – you know, might have been something with the weight of the seat or something too, because I mean, these these aircraft didn't even have the overhead storage in the middle, which was actually kind of nice sitting in the middle, right? Because you had a little bit more headspace. But I, I mean, it was interesting the little things that you notice. You know, the, this A three fifty nine hundred ULR does not have an economy. It's only business, and it's only business and premium economy. And premium economy is literally like probably only ten rows. I didn't go that far back. I mean, I kind of peered and it looked short. It could have been 10 or 15 rows. It's, it's, it's not a lot. I mean, you're, you're behind the wing by that point. I mean, part of that's because of the range, right? Because, you know, the, the, it's a ULR because I guess it's basically a flying gas tank and they need to weight restrict it. So the way you do that is you have fewer people on the plane. And the way you do that is you make it all premium. Yeah, yeah. And don't get me wrong. It was wonderful. The onboard product was great other than the hard product. And the space really did, you know, it felt nice. It was not a full flight. It was anything but a full flight. I think I saw probably six to six or eight empty seats in uh, business class alone. This was a little bit of a wonky one with book to cook because they serve three meals, but they only let you book to cook for two. And so you had to sort of, you know, make a, make a decision because that last meal was, it was only like a snack. And, and candidly, I, I was unimpressed with that snack. 
Hmm. But for the first meal, I think I got myself a steak. Again, my wife got the uh, lobster thermidor. That proved, we think, to not be the smartest of moves because she let our daughter have a little bit and there was a little bit of tossing of cookies. It's a little aggressive doing lobster thermidor for for a 15-month-year-old. <laughs> it might have been. And so <laughs> I'll kind of break this up into the experience and then the family experience, I'll say. That first meal was good. And then the second meal was somewhere between six and nine hours. It was really kind of weird because, you know, we're resting, most of us are sleeping. And then, you know, you start hearing, you know, a little jingling in the kitchen and they kind of come by and they're, they're like, okay, you ready for your next meal? And I'm like, I've been literally sleeping and not doing anything. I, uh, I, I can go a little bit more than six hours between meal snacks. I asked them to hold it closer to arrival. They did. It still didn't end up being perfect, but you know, it was nice to at least have you know something a little bit more substantive. I would recommend anybody that is flying that route from Singapore to JFK because even their like mid-flight snacks were 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 not really hearty. Going from JFK to Singapore seemed a lot more a bigger spread. I personally would recommend anybody hold your meal later in the flight so that you're not getting off that flight hungry. That's surprising for a Singapore flight. You know, they, I always felt like I was well fed on Singapore generally. Well, and it's funny because I, I mean, and, and remember, I'm a little bit more picky because I don't eat seafood most of the time, right? Mm-hmm. And so I had asked for like two different things off the mid-flight snacks, and they're like, "No, we only we only do that from JFK to Singapore." I guess because it's like an hour and 15 minutes longer flight. Interesting. But yeah, so had I not held my second meal, I probably would have gotten off that flight pretty hungry. You know, something to think about when you're when you're on a 17 and a half hour marathon flight, right? Yeah, that's a good good point. I was thinking about your comment about how it was kind of empty and I, and you know, when I think about it, they're also running the Newark to Singapore route as well, right? Simultaneously. So they've got two separate A350 900s flying back and forth from Singapore, aren't they? Yeah, and I would offer that depending upon your purposes, it seems like it's almost timed that you want to fly from the U.S. to Singapore at a JFK because you leave late and you get in at like 5 or 6 a.m. in the morning, but then you want to leave late out of Singapore and fly into Newark because you leave late, I think it's like 11 or midnight, and then you land at like 5 a.m. in the morning in Newark. Hmm. So, so it's almost like the two flights make it perfect for the people that want to like land and go to work. Or land and hit the ground running for touring. You just have to like switch it up between those two airports. And they're so close. It really, it seems almost planned the way they, they, they sort of did that, those two different flight times. Well, it just seems like a lot of lift to, to Singapore compared to what it was. Because, you know, I don't think it was always JFK and Newark both running that route. You know, I felt like it was traditionally more Newark, right? I think it was only Newark. I would dare to say that those extra, what, 20 miles just were not bearable on that old uh, A3, what was it, an A340-500? Yeah, it was definitely an A340 back in the day. That that would have been yeah. almost a decade ago, probably. It could be that they just couldn't make it to JFK. It could be that they preferred being with their Starlines partner. But yeah, they only had the Newark in the past. It was Newark and LA. And now I think it's JFK, Newark, and then you've got San Francisco, I thought was a direct. I know United does direct. And then you got LA. But I think yep. the New York airports and LA are the longest ones. Yep. Well, and they're competing now with with United, right? Now they've got some, you know, intra-alliance competition on that route. Yeah, that's certainly true. Yeah. So so then I guess the other thing I'd say is from a family experience, you, you know, you're taking a 15-month-old on a 17 and a half hour flight. That 12-hour flight on the way from, from London to Singapore had been her previous long flight. 
to give you an idea of how all in we went on number one, going around the world, which is kind of cool for you know an under two year old to be able to say, hey, I went around the world when she can actually say that. And for her parents who can brag that way. I would say the parents who can brag is probably the the bigger thing for you guys. <laughs> yeah, I'd say you're right. <laughs> you know, so this was a little bit aggressive. I mentioned before we gave her a little bit of the lobster thermidor. That was a little bit too much. We think that was too rich. She tossed her cookies and then promptly felt fine after we got her, you know, changed and kind of, you know, freshen her up. She was fine. The Singapore flight attendants were so perfect. I mean, like, I don't know how they knew. But like she tossed her cookies, they were out helping, you know, here's a bag for the dirty, for the dirty onesie. Here's, you know, I, I, you know, here's some towels, switch out things. They were fantastic. And then toward the end of the flight, she just wasn't feeling too well. And I think it was just a long flight. I won't go into details, but there was a run to the lab as soon as we got off an act, active runway. <laughs> <laughs> But again, the flight attendants were just really, really supportive. They were wonderful. The only thing that they tried to do that they weren't successful with was at one point they did offer to like kind of carry her, you know, hold her, walk her up the aisle at one point just to give my wife a break so she could eat. And our daughter just wasn't having it. And that's just because our, you know, our daughter doesn't do, do, do daycare. So she's not as used to, to strangers, but you know, they tried, they were right there, just a fantastic crew. And just that Singapore service that is just insurmountable. Maybe insurmountable is, a, is the wrong word, but I mean, I just think they just have their processes so refined and they do it so well. They set a high bar. I mean, you know, you rarely hear about a bad Singapore crew. I mean, you know, it's hard to hear anything about Singapore airline service and not pe- have people gush over how attentive and how friendly and how genuine, you know, the people aren't, you know. I've flown them quite a bit, you know, and I would agree. You know, it's it's very hard for me to think of a time or an encounter with the Singapore Airlines staff member that wasn't, you know, just top notch, you know, and kind of like exemplary for the industry. Yeah, absolutely. I couldn't agree more. And you know, the funny thing, and I don't know why this comes to mind, but just walking through Kenji Airport and you see those Singapore, uh, the, the Singapore flight attendants in, in those, what is it, the Baltic design? uniforms, the dresses. Like batik or something. But I think they're actually designed by Givenchy, I think. I think it's actually a French designer, isn't it? But I think it's a batik design. It's a traditional uh, style, but the the actual designer, I think, is a French designer, believe it or not. And, And I would believe that. But the thing that's striking to me is think about how many times, you know, Delta's gone from one color to another, or United's changed their flight attendant uniforms, or Americans been on, you know, gotten class action lawsuits because the flight attendant uniforms that they give them make people itch or, or other otherwise break out. Singapore hasn't changed in as long as I can think of. I mean, you know, at least over a decade. It's timeless. I'm looking at the Wikipedia entry for Singapore Girl. It's coined 1972, and it was—I was wrong. It was a French designer, but it's Balmain, not Givenchy. There you go. I'm not familiar with Balmain, so I would have believed the Givenchy, <laughs> and I can't even pronounce it as well as you can. They're the shampoo purveyor for uh, Grand Hyatt. Oh, that one. Yes. So they do clothing design and shampoo. Well, you know how a lot, okay. a lot of fashion design fashion houses are. They they do fragrance and they do lots of different things. So you know they slap their name on stuff and and sell it for money. And so they haven't changed their uniform since 1972, you said? If Wikipedia is to be believed, yes. I, I believe it. It's That's a lot. That's a long time. That's commitment. I love it. Yeah, and they're still timeless. It's classic. I mean, and, you know, like it is definitely, it's an icon of Singapore is. Airlines. You know, there really is not, 
at this point, you know, you, for them to change it would probably be really hard because, you know, you, you almost have to think of these when you think of Singapore Airlines, it's synonymous with the kind of the, the Singapore girl flight attendant uniform. It truly is. So there was only one more flight, which is kind of, uh, I guess, a letdown after all of these amazing flights that you had coming back home, right? Oh, is that even worth talking about? It- <laughs> Probably not. But, you know, I don't know. It's on the list, right? Yeah, this is one of those things. Like, I try not to get, you know, wrapped up about it. I, I know some people get really wrapped up about, you know, different things. So so we ended up finding we were going to drive home. And I was like, okay, I'm gonna we're gonna land at 5 p.m. and I'm gonna try to drive home that night, or I'm gonna you know be in for another hotel room. And I was just really ready to be home, so ended up finding uh, American Airlines for 16,000 points per person, which is egregious, but it was the flight we wanted, and I wasn't thinking clearly enough to go through BA to try to book it via BA. But we got that JFK Reagan National DCA flight. And literally only had like two hours between when we land, uh, we were scheduled to land and when this flight was going to be taking off. Ended up getting my farewell upgrade from American Airlines executive platinum status to, to first class. And it effectively was just a seat. They didn't give us any pre-departure beverages. The pilot said it would be a 35-minute flight, which ended up being about an hour and 25 minutes because they ended up taking the tour of the national capital region. And the pilot gets on and says, hey, there's going to be some turbulence, so uh, we're going to ask the flight attendants not to bother serving today. And so all that leads up to literally I could have just taken a bus. <laughs> I mean, I hate to say it that way, but the flight attendants, despite you know supposed clear, uh, turbulence, which never happened, spent the entire time cloistered in the little galley area with the curtain in and proceeded to do absolutely nothing. That sounds pretty actually normal for New York to D.C. kind of flights, actually. I feel like I at least get one drink, whether it's on the ground or in the air. I've always gotten at least one drink in in Mm, first. You haven't flown that route enough. (laughs) Yeah, I probably have only done it maybe, you know, six six or so times in, in the last few years. Maybe maybe more than a few And I wouldn't beat yourself up about booking it with Avios because, you know, 16000 per person, that's probably not a saver award. So there probably wouldn't have been Avios availability. Yeah, that's consoling. I'm finding that with my status waning with American, I'm not nearly as stingy with my American miles. If I find a flight that, that I think is going to work well, I just – I probably shouldn't because it's still really hard to, to, to generate American miles. But I think that's probably a topic for another show. I will point out, you know, for our listeners that, you know, those that are booking Avios for American flights, you know, if you are successful in in getting your American elite number added to that award reservation, I think I have still been getting upgraded. So that's another little little tip for those type of routes. You think that works with Alaska as well, since Alaska is now one world? It's a great question. I haven't thought to actually book an Alaska flight using Avios. There's probably only a very small use case for those, unlike... American, which actually does have a lot of short haul, you know, like DC or, you know, New York type flights, you know, there aren't too many short haul Alaska flights. They're mostly up, I guess, in the Northwest or West Coast. Well, and I was almost thinking the other way, you know, you book that same JFK DCA, but instead of putting your American number in, you put your MVP gold 75. Oh, right. Number oh, in. interesting. Yeah, that, that might work. That probably would work too. You would think it's all based on America's upgrade algorithm, right? You'd think, unless they're doing that specifically because of their BA partnership. Well, I don't think they want you to be able to do it. I usually have to go through a couple of machinations involving Royal Jordanian or Finnair and go into their website and, and messing around in Amadeus, I guess, and, and trying to you know 
basically, I, which is what I did the last time. I just kind of went in there and started mashing around with the my frequent flyer settings on my uh, PNR. And lo and behold, got my American number in there and got upgraded. Yeah, yeah. Sometimes you got to do some serious calisthenic to change around frequent flyer numbers once you once you get something booked. You know, every so often, just like this case, it's worth the effort. Now that we've kind of, you know, heard about all your kind of really interesting flights to Southeast Asia, I, I'd love to hear a little bit more about Singapore and Bali themselves. So do you want to start in Singapore? So Singapore, we had kind of two different experiences. We had a long layover where we went to the Jewel. The Jewel is essentially a big mall that is landside at the airport. And they've got this gorgeous waterfall that parades. Uh, ironically enough, it doesn't start until I think 11 a.m. in the morning. At night, they project colors on it. And it's really, really gorgeous. Other than that, it's really largely just a mall. I hate to put it that way, but you know, it's a nice place to go. They had some good food. We ended up trying Shake, Shake Shack there. Probably wouldn't do that again. <laughs> Singapore Shake Shack, huh? Why? Was it not good? Yeah, I just didn't enjoy it. I should have tried dim sum or, or, or something, you know, that that I couldn't just go, you know, around the corner for. Well, you were in Asia for like a week. I think you can be forgiven to try in an American eatery, you know, at least once during the, the week in Asia. Yeah, yeah, and kind of, you know, to that point, I think we did go to Din Tai Fung. We did go to Din Tai Fung the first day we got in after our stay in, in Bali. The beauty of the Andaz Singapore is that it's really close to it just. The mall just escaped me because there's a mall on every corner. But the Andaz Singapore is fairly close to a mall with a Din Tai Fung. So we had gone over to that, that one. And then uh, we had some dim sum I think Singapore is one well. of those cities where when you say a mall with a Din Tai Fung, you still have to be more specific. <laughs> <laughs> it was like Marina Bay. Yeah, it's like Marina Bay or it could be like the Sun City or it could be like uh, there's like a no, whole bunch No, that's what of... it was. It was Sun City. It was Sun City because oh, I okay. think Marina was a little bit further away. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, but the thing I love about Singapore is it's so walkable. We took three cabs in our two days there and two of those three cabs were to and from the airport because that's really the only direction or distance that you really need to take a cab. We went to visit friends that lived in uh, Robertson Key or Quay, depending upon how you like to say it. I've heard it on uh, tour buses, I've heard Clark Key, and it's spelled Q-U-A-Y, and they call it Clark Key. So apparently there's a number of keys up the river, and Clark is the, the closest to the Marina Bay. And then you've got Robertson, and then there's a couple of others. So we learned a little bit about that. But here we end up going to Robertson Key and walked with our friends all the way down to Clark Key. It wasn't oppressively hot? It was, uh, was the weather pretty nice or something? It was pretty good. It was, I, I'd say it was eighties, you, okay. you know, it was probably in the, uh, in the 80 degree range, but walk along the river was really, really nice. It's something that we had never done before. There's a lot of nice eateries. If you get a little bit further inland from, from Clark Key, nice eateries, a mixture of Western and, and Asian because it's largely an expat area. We went to a museum that had a, a nice child's uh, kids exhibit. Our daughter promptly slept through all of that, but we were good with that. You, you know, some sensory stuff and then dim sum at one of their new malls. We also had the time to check out the Merlion statue, which is that kind of famed statue uh, fountain. Sim symbol of Singapore. Yes, the symbol of Singapore. It's still amazing to me how walkable the city is if you know how to walk it. I was rusty walking from the Andas. We walked by the Raffles Hotel and we walked down the Merlion earlier in the day and ended up you know, having to, having to carry the stroller downstairs because I didn't realize that there was a bridge on the other side that was completely, you know, accessible. Everything was nice and easy. Ended up finding that on the way out. But, you know, just such a walkable, walkable city. 
you can almost walk anywhere and not even need the the MTR, which is their mass transit. It's a pretty compact city, you know, a lot of people living in a, a pretty sh- a small area. So that kind of doesn't surprise me too much. But I'd love to hear more about the Onda Singapore. It's definitely one of the hotels that I haven't been to. I've been to Singapore a couple times, but managed to not visit the the Onda. So I forget, I guess it didn't open that long ago, I guess. No, it's fairly new. I think it was open the last time. Maybe it was open the last time we went through. I, I, I can't remember when, yeah. when it truly opened, but it, it was a fairly new hotel. It, it was definitely feeling new when we got there. That Andaz does different things. Like uh, every other Andaz I've been to has like some kind of wine hour and they mm-hmm. give you like one drink ticket per person and that's it for your stay. Oh, wow. Interesting. I didn't love that experience. I ended up, and I don't like to complain, but I ended up just saying, hey, you know, this isn't consistent with the brand experience that I've had in other places. Well, that's a shame. They gave me a couple more drink tickets and then said, well, you know, we'll take feedback. And so I gave them feedback on the survey. I, I just didn't feel like that was the right the right call. That's just my opinion. I ended up sharing that in, in one of the groups I'm in and I got mixed responses. I'll be honest. And again, I'm not like to be that kind of, you know, do you know who I am sort of thing, but I felt the room was really good. The room was nice. No upgrade. Didn't complain about not getting an upgrade. I get it. We're there for a weekend. It was, you know, perfectly sufficient for what we needed. I didn't like the area though. There's some construction around. It was a double edged sword, right? There was some, some construction around, but you were also like, you know, only a couple of blocks from Raffles Hotel. So if you if you kind of go out one way, you don't realize there's construction and it's nice and you're just like a straight shot to Raffles Hotel and to other stuff over there. But if you want to go down by the marina and you go out the other way over, to, over to, towards Suntech City, it just doesn't have nearly the relaxing experience. I also really like the, the Orchard Road and the intersection of Orchard Road and Scotts Road which is probably about 10 or 15 minute walk away from the Andas. It's a little further away from, you know, the more popular area. We were probably, I'd say only like three or four blocks away from the uh, Formula One circuit. Mm. So it's definitely one of the more, you know, popular areas to be in. I just find that Orchard Road, Scotts Road area to be a little bit more kind of calm. And, and it's, it's actually a nice walk to get, you know, everywhere else. We usually stay at the Grand Hyatt, and the Grand Hyatt is still under, I think, renovations. I've actually never stayed at the Grand Hyatt. I I visited you at the Grand Hyatt, and we've enjoyed that lovely lounge together for a good amount of time, if I remember correctly. But I've actually never had a chance to stay at the Grand Hyatt. You know, every time I've stayed at that Grand Hyatt, I've gotten upgraded to a suite. And maybe that's just something that's ingrained in me that I'm going to give them a – they get first right of refusal for me. But I've always found that that Grand Hyatt to be very good. The other thing is, the Onda Singapore is 20,000 points a night. I think the Grand Hyatt used to be like 12,000. So, you know, big difference. And obviously you've got the lounge versus you've got the single drink ticket. So, you know, it's all about what you're there for. I think there's plenty of other great hotels that I'd like to try out before I return to the Andas. Yeah, I've been a very big, I guess, formerly Starwood and now Marriott customer, I think, in Singapore. Because I can think of many times I've been there, it was either the St. Regis or, you know, of course, I haven't stayed there, but there's there's a Ritz-Carlton, there's a Marriott, there's a Westin, there's a lot of different options kind of in the the Marriott uh, world over there. I've stayed at a Four Points over there. I'm trying to think what else have I stayed at. There are a lot of options and there are a lot of good options. And I know that our our stay at the St. Regis was pretty good from the guys trip that we just did. That episode just last, I guess. And, you know, that's definitely another one that I'll, I wouldn't mind coming back to. But I guess I, I don't have to go to the Andas. I like the St. Regis. We stayed at the Marriott Tang Plaza. Small rooms, but very nice other than that. And and mm-hmm. again, that location that I, I tend to tend to prefer. And then we've also done the, I think it was the W over in Sentosa. That one was a little bit 
odd. It just felt like a concrete jungle. Ironically enough, out on Sentosa Island, you know, the pool area was not terribly great. It just felt like there wasn't a lot of shade. It was not very close to Sentosa, so you had to take like a, a shuttle or something, like, you know, whatever their their local transport was. That's probably a really niche hotel for people that, that actually don't want to be in Singapore proper. And probably not a lot of people are venturing out to Sentosa. And if they are, they might just be taking the cable cars. I'm really excited to hear about your stay in Bali. So I'm looking here at the notes here. It looks like you stayed at the Hyatt Regency. Is that right? Yeah. So the Hyatt Regency is sort of a new hotel, sort of, I guess I'll say. It used (laughs) to be a larger property and it used to be the Hyatt Bali in Sonur. And they closed it years before the pandemic. Like, I don't think it's ever been open when I've been to Bali. I could be wrong. I might have just missed it the first few years. Usually I stay down in Nusa Dua at the Grand Hyatt, but I heard that the Nusa Dua shops had just gotten massacred by the pandemic. And we didn't want to be like kind of in that golden ghetto if there are no shops around. So we wanted to try the new hotel. And so what they did was they took the old Hyatt Bali property and they kind of split it in half. And so half is an Andaz Bali. And then the other half, they made the Hyatt Regency Bali. And it's, you know, beautiful properties, nice pools, really comfortable. Just, I would say it hits well above its 5,000 points per night price tag. Unfortunately, not much longer for this world, right? At the 5,000 point price point, right? It's part of the the recent announcements around uh, category changes, right? If I'm not mistaken, the high Regency Bali is one of the ones getting an upgrade to category two. Yeah, even at a category two, I think you're still getting good value. Uh, you're, you're still getting good value. So they have a Regency Club. Regency Club was wonderful. They even had live music. Oh. They had some, you know, the drum players, I guess. Or I can't think of what the Polynesian music is. I am drawing a blank too, but the drums, are there's a specific name for them. Yes. And so they had those folks there during the evening hour, two hours, which was wonderful. The food was actually really, really good. We ended up eating off property probably four or five times. But the food in the lounge was actually really good, and they swapped it out a few times. And they had, you know, some of the local specialties. They had some other non-local. They had some skewers. They skewered something different every night. They had teriyaki chicken one night. They had eel another night. Oh, your favorite? I think they had some other seafood. <laughs> yes. Oh, eel. Yes. Yes. I, I'm sure. I'm sure there's you nothing better than eel. <laughs> gamelan, oh, by the way, Indonesian drums are gamelan. gamelan. You are so quick with that Google. That's awesome. I guess I'm the producer. <laughs> Apparently, apparently, at least this episode. (laughs) But yeah, really great experience. I thought the property's right on the beach. And I found that the Sonur Beach was much, much nicer than what they've got down in Nusa Dua. Oh, interesting. It's still... The quality of the sand? What is is it that's better about it? I felt like the quality of the sand, and it's also, it's still protected, but like you can actually go into the water without walking for a mile. Like I remember, okay, got I remember like the unevenness of the Grand Hyatt's beach where like, you know, it just didn't kind of go down. It just didn't get deep at all. This one, you could go, you know, you'd have to walk a little bit and then you'd start to get into kind of more meaningful water to enjoy. It was the beautiful blue color, which we hadn't seen really at the, in the Nusa Dua area. Yeah. You know, this is like a point that, you know, I wanted to make about Bali is, you know, like for those who haven't been there, you know, there's a lot of beaches in Bali, but not all the beaches are going to be as picturesque as maybe what you're thinking of, like a Caribbean beach or beach in the Maldives or Fiji or Tahiti or something like that. There are plenty of beaches where the water is a little bit murky, a little bit more 
kind of has some more sediment and, and not quite as picturesque. So I'm really excited to go to this beach if you're telling me the water is kind of blue, because that's kind of what I, I've seen in, in Indonesia, but not as much on Bali. Like I, it was some of the smaller islands that I saw, those kind of like blue white sand type beaches. And so if you're telling me that that Sanor beach is that kind, I'm, I'm kind of excited to check it out because I know quite a few of the, like the ones in Nusa Dua, the, the ones in Seminyak, the ones in like Jimbaran, you know, the, all those different beach areas of Bali. Generally, I, the beaches themselves have been, I wouldn't call the prettiest beaches and, you know, as far as tropical beach resort type places go. Yeah, I totally agree with you. I don't know that I've been to Seminyak or Jimbaran, but I found this to be, you know, more similar to Kuta. Although Kuta was the only beach that I've ever seen in Bali that seems like they could actually do surfing on. This mm-hmm. beach was anything but. This beach felt like you were- More protected you know, cove, had that beautiful. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it wasn't a cove, but they had like a kind of a jetty or, you know, something that kind of broke up the waves. A breakwater. Uh, a little further out. A breakwater. Yeah, yeah. We'll call it a breakwater. I'm sure that's probably not the right term because, you know, it kind of went parallel to the beach. But yeah, I found that to be really good. It felt kind of- more like Gulf of uh, Mexico versus Atlantic. You know, if you're using the two coasts in Florida, just based on the waves, there was one wave that came in that was enough to knock our daughter off her feet when she was in the water for the first time in her life at a beach. She took that really well, thankfully, but that's probably the largest wave that we saw the entire time we were there. So back to the hotel for a second, does it share very many amenities or facilities with the Andas or are they pretty separate? You know, they share the spa, I think. I think okay. that's the only thing that they do share, though. We didn't end up walking around too, too much of the Andas, but we walked by it on the beach side. So the one thing that Sanur has that I really appreciated, especially having our daughter in a stroller, was they have a concrete path that goes along the beach. So you can like walk up and down. They've got some you know beachside restaurants where you can get your nasi garang or nasi lamak. You can try, you know, the different things, you know, the different local foods and, you know, walk by other hotels, that sort of thing. And we're walkers. So that was really convenient for us. But the Andas looked really similar, like in design and everything. Like once the spa or it was either the spa or the front desk told us, yeah, this used to be, you know, all one hotel. It was really clear that the design changes were minimal. I would say it felt like there was maybe the lounge chairs were a little bit different, but largely, you know, the hard stuff all seems pretty consistent. I have a question. So did you guys decide to arrange transportation with the hotel or what did you guys just do? Just take a taxi? You know, we we arranged hotel transfer from the airport to the hotel because we just didn't want to risk anything because we were arriving like nine, 10 o'clock at night. No, it was like 10 or 11 by the time we got there. And we thought that might have like helped with, you know, logistics. I even arranged early for like a a child seat. There was no child seat. I was disappointed (laughs) with that. Apparently that's fairly common, but I did, Mm -hmm. I I did have a word with the guest services person and they were kind enough. Well, they offered, they said that they would honor or give us the ride back to the airport for free. Mm -hmm. They didn't, it was on the bill. The guest services manager did ensure that there was a car seat and she did see us off. And candidly, the cost of the transfer, even through the the hotel was not so much that I was going to complain about that. You know, I, I complain about some things, but I wasn't going right. to make a big deal about, Hey, well, you said you'd cover this. It wasn't worth making a, a case out of. So how much was the transfer? Eh, it was like $20, I think. Yeah, that's very and, reasonable. And, and, yeah. And, and my feeling was, you know, they probably need the $20 more than I do. Yeah, <laughs> you know, probably fair. For everything that we spent in Bali, I felt like it was still a really, really great value. We even got massages. Not only did we get one massage, we got like a foot massage each. And it was so good and such a reasonable value. I think 
I think we spent less than a hundred dollars for 90 minutes worth of massages per person. Mm-hmm. Well, you know, Bali just in general, it's, it's still a wonderful destination for really stretching your travel budget. You know, I think again, you know, it's a place where you can have a very comfortable beach getaway and not have to dig too deep into the wallet. And, you know, especially for, you know, all the different meals and things like that. I mean, of course, my experience has been at the resorts themselves, you know, they'll pretty much charge you, you know, what we're used to with US prices, but, you know, just venture a little bit off the beaten path and, you know, you'll find a lot of good options that are a lot cheaper. Oh, yeah, yeah. Our lunches were generally about 2 to $3 yep. for all three of us. And sometimes that even included a drink. Sometimes I might have paid another dollar or two for a drink. But in the old days when we were doing Nusa Duo, we'd get massages for like $10. We just didn't feel like we could work the logistics as easily, you know, trading off our daughter and, and doing it at a non, <laughs> non-hotel non location. So uh, we paid a little bit of a premium. You have to give, up a, you give up a little bit there, a new dad <laughs> traveling yeah, but- the world. <laughs> but it was it, it, it was just a great experience. And, you know, sometimes sometimes you don't realize how much nicer it is to actually have a treatment in a spa versus like on the on a beach side on like some, you know, kind of bamboo mat. There are some nice things about having, you know, a true spa experience. Well, I am definitely inspired. I would love to go back to Bali, go back to Singapore. I have not been to the Hyatt Regency. I have not been to the Jewel or the Andaz, but I, I might leave the Andaz off my list. <laughs> that being said, I'm I'm really excited. Hopefully one of these days I'll make it back sooner than later. Although I will say that the award availability on our favorite carriers has definitely not made it easy. No, it's definitely hard. We're we're trying to get back there one more time this year and then still starting to plan a trip next year. And and even far out, the award availability is just not what we're used not to. Not what it's used to. Not what we've been, I guess, what we are accustomed to. And now I guess realize maybe that was the golden age of award travel, at least in the near in the near term. We might look back at it in that way. And definitely Singapore is definitely one of those timeless cities. So whenever the award award availability starts to flow back. I think that's definitely a place that'll continue to always be on our list. Here's hoping that some of these Asian carriers start getting a little bit too exuberant and sending lots of wide bodies over the ocean with empty seats. So hopefully they'll offer up a couple of us for us uh, miles and points people. Anyway, uh, Trevor, anything else you want to say to the folks about your wonderful Southeast Asian adventure? No, I I, I just hope more of us can get back out there. That availability has just been so tough and it's just a great part of the world. Well, I'm glad you were able to make it. It sounds like you put together a pretty amazing trip. I'm very jealous. I am excited to go back as soon as I can as well, hopefully. Maybe with you, maybe with your family. I'd, I'd be excited to do it. But I guess we'll I guess we'll save some of that for hopefully a future travel story. Absolutely. Absolutely. Well, that's the show. Thanks for joining us, and we hope you enjoyed listening. Join us next time for Travel Stories. Until then, we hope your next story is a travel story. 